Welcome to the Heal Podcast, where we believe God heals people in the way that brings Him the most glory and brings us closest to Him. Whether you've received healing, you're in the fight of your life, or you gave up on God a long time ago, you are welcome here. As you come to the table, listen with an open mind, knowing everyone's journey is unique, but pain is our common language. Hello, and welcome to The Heal Podcast. My name is Tara bradham Denai. I am honored to be your host and even more honored for our guest today. Continuing on this month of women's health awareness, we have Sarah Bessie, who is a best-selling author. She's a sought-after speaker. She serves as president of the board for Heartlight Ministries in Haiti, and she is someone I have so much to learn from. She is gentle, kind, she is humble, as she wrote about her friend, but I believe applies to her as well. She is someone who can make origami out of hate mail, and those people are so rare in this world. So I have had the pleasure of reading two of her books, both Miracles and Other Reasonable Things, and her newest book, A Rhythm of Prayer. And I believe that these are going to be books that you find helpful. I got to talk to Sarah about both of them, and I am here to introduce you to her and help you see how she and I and how you can live your ordinary miracle every day. So here is Sarah Bessie. All right, Sarah, I cannot tell you how honored I am to have you on this podcast. I can't wait for what you get to share with our audience because your story has meant so much to me. So welcome. I'm so excited you're here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Well, for people who aren't familiar with you, and I know I get excited every time now I go in Barnes and Noble and I see your books and I'm like, oh, I, I'm getting ready to have a conversation with her. So I know a lot of people know you, but some don't. Will you give us just a brief overview of where you are and what your heart is for your ministry? Oh, sure. Well, in terms of where I am, geographically, I'm in Western Canada. So I live just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, been married for 20 years. We have four kids that go from kindergarten to high school. So that's a nice big <laughs> bit of busyness in our life there. Mm-hmm. I'm a writer. That's kind of probably my primary, I don't know, I, you know, way I understand my vocation anyway. So I've written a few books. First one was Jesus Feminist, which of course caused no trouble or controversy or any problems whatsoever. (laughs) Nice and easy. (laughs) And then I wrote Out of Sorts, Making Peace with an Evolving Faith. My third book was called Miracles and Other Reasonable Things. And then uh, just have a collaborative book of prayer that just was released very recently called A Rhythm of Prayer. Also co-lead the Evolving Faith community, which is kind of this yearly gathering and podcast and kind of community that has organically sprung up around some of those conversations about what it means to not just be in the wilderness, but what it means to set up a feast there, what it means to reimagine your faith and reclaim, but also release Mm -hmm. some aspects. I think that's a a conversation a lot of us are having uh, in the church right now across many generations. And so, yeah, that's that kind of about covers it, I think, for the most part. Yeah. So I was maybe going to ask this, I was going to see maybe farther down, not right at the beginning of the podcast, but you mentioned it and something I really want to learn from you. And if this is any way unhelpful, I will edit it out. So just know that. But you talked about your first book and like that wasn't controversial at all. And I know that a lot of what you do is controversial. And there are some things that I don't fully agree with, but guess what? Like, that is beautiful. Like what you are doing for the kingdom of God is beautiful and how you're bringing people together and bringing people in who have been so ostracized, like props to you. And so will you help me help us understand how can we act in unity within the church instead of tearing people apart if we disagree on a tiny little detail? You know, that's a, that's a good question. And I think that It's always kind of funny to me when I am often, you know, kind of characterized as being, you know, controversial or, Mm -hmm. you know, one, one wing or another or whatever else. Cause I mean, to be honest, I'm a straight white married lady (laughs) with four kids. If I'm I'm as edgy as it gets, we all need, we all need to get out more. Yeah. But there was this sense of, I don't know, you know, I remember when Jesus Feminist came out and again, for me, I mean, it's not an academic book. It was more of a plea for, I think, reimagining what the kingdom of God could look like. Mm -hmm. And that to me has been the center of 
what a lot of people may consider like a radicalization was mm-hmm. for me beginning to take the words and teachings and life of Jesus really seriously. Yeah. To redraw the center of God's kingdom towards the margins. Mm. To learn what it means to love Jesus from people who have a life and a story and a and a social location that is completely different than my own. Yeah. And you know what? That kind of proximity, that kind of relationship, that kind of friendship, it deeply is transformative. And mm-hmm. I think that that's you know again something that maybe we've been taught to be afraid of. Yeah. Is that transformation? A lot of times we think there's a slippery slope that we're going to somehow fall, slide down, and lose everything. Mm-hmm. And for sure, you can lose some things. Usually, there's some things that you need to lose. Mm-hmm. But there's this greater sense of you know, if Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, then we are always being transformed in response to following Jesus. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to love Jesus and love our neighbor as well? Which I think gets down to that core question you're asking about, you know, how do you disagree beautifully? Yeah. How do you make room for the pathways that people need to travel to leave doors open, even for people with whom you profoundly disagree? Mm-hmm. I don't know that I do that perfectly all the time. I think that all of us, you know, are, are learning and growing. I think there's also times when it's not possible because it's not maybe in, in good faith or you're not, you're talking to someone whose, you know, opinions maybe are deeply connected to harmful theology or harmful things that are, are destroying people or destroying the image of God in people. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of complexity there. Yeah. But I think that one of the biggest things that has shaped me when it comes to, you know, rethinking theology, rethinking how we show up in the world, rethinking how we connect with one another, including people with whom we disagree, it's the realization that even if I think I'm right, I am not exempt from the fruit of the spirit. Mm. I don't get okay. to pretend that I, that I'm not, my roots are not down deep in the welcoming, good, generous love of God. Then you're going to bear fruit that is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And even I hear self-control. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> there's this sense of you don't get a pass on that yeah. just because you think you're right. And anytime you think you do, anytime you think that you can bear bad fruit and somehow nourish the body of Christ, you just won't. It'll rot from the inside out. Oh my goodness. Yes. And I've had some ugly stuff come out of my heart in the past year and a half, a lot. And I've had to really look at that. And apparently everyone has heard this analogy. I heard it in a sermon this week, but I had not where if you're walking with a glass full of water and someone throws a ball at you and you try to dodge it. Like whatever's in the cup is going to come out. Mm -hmm. And that's like 2020 was like the most epic dodgeball tournament we've ever seen. And it's like things coming out right and left. And I think we've had to confront ourselves, right? Like, are you holding so much to what you think is truth? Yeah, that you're not exemplifying the things of the spirit, right? And I don't know if you watch The Chosen. Do you watch The Chosen? No, I can't say that I do. Have you heard of it? I haven't even heard of it. No, we'll have to completely educate me. Okay. So it's the first ever series on Jesus's life that they're doing and they feel a sense of urgency. So they're not even trying to wait for the different seasons to come out. So season one, it it blew up during the pandemic, I think virtually, and then other things. And so it's the biggest crowdfunded project ever. And it's Jesus's life, but like incredibly written people who understand the Bible, who are putting context to his life. It is the most insane. Oh, I love it so, so much. So they just, right before this interview I was watching, they just came out with the season two uh, trailer. And then this Sunday, Easter, we're releasing this in May, but they're coming out with the first episode of season two. And I was like in tears. And anyway, all that to say, could not more highly recommend that show because it's incredible acting, which we don't have a lot of times in in Christian Mm -hmm. media. So, oh my gosh. Yes, yes. But Jesus says in that, I was talking with one of my my mentors who also loves it. And I'm not sure this, this is not in the Bible, but, you know, Peter, when Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector was like, man, what's going on? All, you know, and Jesus says, get used to different, mm-hmm. get used to different. And I am just repeating that to myself over and over, get used to different. And you know what? Maybe what I believe is not the difference that Jesus has. Maybe the Jesus I know is not the Jesus he really is, right? Like the Jews thought he would conquer Rome. Like who am I to think that I'm any better than that? You know, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. I think that that was really the origin point for me. You know, I just kind of landed in this place of just being so incredibly done with organized religion, with some of the things that were going on that I had witnessed. And again, this was was a while ago. So we weren't even in pandemic times. But there was this sense of, you know, I kind of needed to start and figure out whether or not I was in or out on on this whole thing. 
And I remember, you know, like most good little Protestants, like you start in the Bible. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to go, and, you know, read the Gospels. Who is Jesus? What yeah. is going on here? Is this something that I actually want to do with, you know, with my time and my life? And I remember having this sense. I actually have a very clear memory of one day sitting, we were in our kitchen. My husband was at the kitchen. I was at the dining room table and I was reading Luke chapter six, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And I was reading this. And it's like, blessed are the poor, blessed are meek, blessed are the peacemakers, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I remember like just slamming my Bible shut and like absolutely warring with like, I was mad mm-hmm. because I thought I would have followed this guy. This now I get it. I get yeah. why people drop their nets. I get why they chase after Jesus. I get why because this is everything is upside down is being made right again. Mm-hmm. And everything that has broken us or that is a different, you know, again, like you said, get used to different. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, like you said, the the great, I don't know, I come from a Pentecostal charismatic background, so I'm super comfortable with words like apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay, be you. So not, right? So there's a sense for me that that this pandemic and this moment in time, and even I would argue maybe particularly the last, you know, four or five years, have been apocalyptic in the truest sense of the word, yep. in that it's been an unveiling. Yep. It's, been a, it's been a revealing. And all the things that we like to think that we could keep, you know, hidden in corners and in polite conversation and in performative mm-hmm. discipleship, we, all of that has been revealed. Yeah. And underneath that, you find the things that you were talking about, right? That are just like, these are the things that were there all along. Yep. Even if we had a tacit agreement not to acknowledge them or make eye contact mm-hmm. with them. And so I think my greatest longing or hope or prayer is that we don't, on the other side of this, somehow just throw a blanket over it and call it mm. fixed. Yeah. Right. So we actually do that hard work of, of continuing to hold eye contact with these things that are deeply mm. damaging or broken yes. or, you know, the ways that we have been revealed, how we treat the disabled in this pandemic, how we treat the elderly, mm-hmm. how we fund whose work is essential and whose isn't yeah. the revelations around racial justice and colonization and the consequences mm-hmm. of these things, you know, just so many different moments over and over and over again, you know, both politically, socially and theologically mm-hmm. that we have been revealed. You look at the revelations of abuse in the church, all of these things, it's apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And so what's the invitation from the spirit in this place to lean into what the shalom of God looks like here in this place? I don't know that it looks like sticking our fingers in our ears and pretending everything's Mm -hmm. fine anymore. Yeah, I think we're being confronted with having to see the ashes in our life. And like you're saying, put a blanket over it. I love what I heard recently where, you know, like if you sweep the ashes under the rug, like one day you're going to trip on them. Like how does Jesus make beauty from ashes if we're putting it under a rug? Mm -hmm. So what would your encouragement be for us as we move forward? I don't know if things are getting back, quote, to normal. I think hopefully things are getting a little better, but who knows what's around the corner? Let's just surrender that right now. But what is your encouragement for people to not put a blanket over it? How does that happen on a Tuesday? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I I think that that'll be profoundly different for every person based on their life and based on, you know, what what their vocation is, what the invitation from the Holy Spirit is. Again, me being charismatic, super comfy with being like the Holy Spirit's active and alive and moving in your life right now. So that being said, I think that there's this sense of, I don't know, I'm reminded of this thing I learned when I was having my babies, it was called uh, the fear, tension, pain cycle. Hmm. And there's this sense of when you are in labor or you're about to give birth, you get afraid Hmm. and then you become more tense and then your pain increases. Hmm. And so you get more afraid and you get more tense and your pain increases. And it just becomes this cycle that's really hard to break out of. And it's because you're resisting your pain. Mm -hmm. And so the big invitation, you know, from my midwives was you've got to learn how to lean into the pain. Hmm. You have got to learn to let the pain teach you what the pain is here to teach you. You have got to release yourself over to that pain. And for sure, not a perfect metaphor. Yeah. There's all sorts of, you know, complexities around, you know, metaphors for birth for for almost, you know, every everyone who's given birth. Yeah. But at the same time, there's this sense to me in that invitation of we're afraid, we're experiencing pain right now. Yeah. And so the tension then it becomes, well, I want to resist that. I want to numb that. I want to avoid the pain mm-hmm. that I'm feeling. But that makes us more tense, yeah. makes us more afraid. And it just will continue to make us sicker and sicker and sicker. And so the invitation I think that a lot of us are facing right now is what, what does it look like to lean into the pain? Mm-hmm. What does it look like to make eye contact with the thing you're terrified of? What does it look like to have honest 
conversations within our churches, within our communities, within our neighborhoods, within our homes about the reckoning that are happening right now in the world and to actually lean into the discomfort lean into conflict, understand that peacemaking is really different than peacekeeping. Mm, And we are called to be peacemakers. And so what's the invitation here in that place? And so I think that that counterintuitive thing of leaning into the pain may mean that we find release on the other side. Yeah. So good. And I think you make a perfect segue. We're talking about this metaphorically. A lot of this pain is mental, emotional, spiritual Exactly. of, oh my gosh, I didn't know, but physical, what I see a lot of the time is we can't ignore physical pain. And I think that's why it's one of the worst or most abrasive things you can experience because you can't shove it down or put it under the rug when it's there, when you wake up, when it's there, when you go to sleep, when it's there waking you up, when you went to sleep. And so this leaning into the pain, will you start taking us into your journey with the car accident? And what did that look like when physical pain entered your life on a really real scale? Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a there's a limit to the tidy metaphors of people who are have never experienced chronic pain, or who have never experienced that kind of I know it's not it's not a metaphor, right? At a certain point, it's like, you know, letting things hurt as much as they hurt. Like that's, that's a real thing. So a number of years ago, I was in a sudden car accident. And the fallout from that was a development of many chronic pain issues. So fibromyalgia, another, you know, nerve damage, hip damage, my foot was broken. That was a long road towards it being fixed, but it's still, it still troubles me to this day. And so that's still a problem. I have a real demarcation in my life of life before and life after. Mm. My older kids remember me as one kind of mom and my younger daughter does not know that mom. She doesn't remember the mom who could ice skate and the one who could go tobogganing and the one who could do those things. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's just been a constant part of my life now. I think that I've hit a good rhythm of understanding my own care, my own limits, but it's hard to make peace with the steady accumulation of losses that come to you because of chronic pain or because of um, disability. And those are things that I'll probably be reckoning with for a long time. Yeah, I certainly under no illusions that I've landed at a at a place where now I could be someone's real teacher in a lot of these things. I still feel very much in the in the trenches of learning Mm -hmm. in a lot of these spaces for sure. Yeah, I mean, aren't we all? But (laughs) in that you still have pain, but you also experienced some pretty crazy healing in the Vatican City or Italy, right? Oh, listen, this is sorry, so bonkers. I, I really wrestled with writing miracles and other reasonable things, which is the book I wrote about that experience about the car accident. I'm so glad you did. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's beautiful. It's because it's a weird story, right? It is a weird story. And it's something that I don't know that we see represented a lot in the conversations that you have around healing or around pain, around suffering, Mm -hmm. because I have had experiences with miracles and I have also had experiences of not being healed, of being part of that company of people who have really unanswered prayers Mm -hmm. and that being a a really particular kind of community, Mm -hmm. right? And because I think like oftentimes when we talk about suffering, I come from more of a charismatic background. So of course there's these elements of healing being expected or being demanded, Mm -hmm. being your birthright, that if you are not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. Yep. It's because there's something wrong with you. So then that narrative becomes very victory. All the all the stories you hear are the people who got their miracle mm-hmm. because everybody who didn't kind of gets quietly swept away or disappeared. Shamed. Shamed, right? Exactly. And so the narrative in those spaces is very like, we've got the victory, we've got the miracle, expect a miracle, this and that, mm-hmm. which again, its own baggage and trauma. Yep. <laughs> On the other side, oftentimes we have this like deification of suffering. Mm. There's no miracles. There's no room for the move of God. There's no room for the miraculous. There's no room yeah. for the possibilities of something supernatural breaking through. Mm-hmm. And so carving that space in the middle between both of those things, and especially because it involves like meeting the Pope and being in Rome mm-hmm. and like really crazy Holy Spirit encounters. And then also not yeah. also a lot of pain, also a lot of suffering, also a lot of unanswered prayers. Also the realities with which I continue to live to this day. Mm-hmm. It's a weird book. And I, <laughs> I'm glad that, glad that you liked it. Yeah, no, it's, 
the word I told people when I read this book, and I don't use this word to describe many books, I said it is beautiful because I don't think we always have answers. And I think that's part of the problem is that we think that we can have the answer. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we always do. Mm -hmm. No, you're right. I think that that's, I think the problem when we try to superimpose or build a box for God Mm -hmm. and say, this is how God works. This is who God is. This is how God answers prayer. This is how I will be in the face of suffering. This is how I mm-hmm. will be in the face of these things that are happening. And, and one of the lines that really led a lot of the writing of the book was actually from 13th century mystic in my story, Eckhart. And he said, God becomes and God unbecomes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the unbecoming of God is really deeply tied to our own unbecoming, mm-hmm. right? And it, you have to often unlearn all the false, broken, damaging narrative God that you maybe knew before. Because again, God will meet with you in it, whatever box you build. Yeah. And then God will transcend the box. Yep. <laughs> that unbecoming means that then there is a room for you to begin to relearn the wild, good, generous provision and welcome of God that is maybe very different yeah. than what we had initially thought or imagined about God. And that's one of those gifts that you grow thankful for with time. Yeah. So for someone listening today who has experienced hurt from the church, particularly in this area about pain and healing, and I like to say it's a spectrum, like, you know, from believing no healing, deification, like you said, of suffering to the demanding of a miracle, but it's really not just a spectrum. I think it's more a circle of just, you can be anywhere on all of these different beliefs, but regardless of where on that circle people are and how they've been hurt, what would you say to someone who is maybe having to unlearn what they've been taught about pain and healing? Hmm. That's a really good question. I think that some of the things that maybe I wish I would have heard or that I wished I would have known would have been that you don't need to be afraid, hmm. that you are loved and deeply beloved, deeply valued, made in the image of God. Yes. Not in spite of these things, but sometimes even because of them. Hmm. You know, there's a passage of scripture in Isaiah that talks about how a bruised reed he will not break. And I think about the tenderness of God towards those of us who are often overlooked or swept aside, mm-hmm. trampled over yeah. because I can't keep up. I would have loved for someone to say your belovedness is not tied to your productivity. Oh, yes. That whether you have a good day and you're able to get up and do the things and check the boxes and get the gold stars, or you have a day where you cannot get out of your bed, you are equally beloved and precious and worthy on both days. You're not earning a single ounce of your belovedness. Mm. And I think that those things would have really served me Mm. well, especially in the early days. Yeah. And I think one of people's main complaints against God is how could you say God made someone and you and I had an accident that spurred our pain, but a lot of people are born with something or have a condition or a limitation. And, you know, Exodus, God says, like, who made the lame? Who made the blind? Is it not I? I made them. So what do we do from your perspective with a God who made us that way? And if we say that people are made and it's wrong, like we're saying God's not a good creator, right? For sure. And I think that even there, there's, I'm reminded of Jesus and how he was healing someone. And they said, well, who, who caused this? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, neither. So for the glory of God to be known. And I often think that sometimes we miss the places where God's glory is hiding. Mm-hmm. And so even the idea of seeing disability or seeing these things as something that is needing to be healed, yeah. that this could be very well a place where God's glory is residing in disabled bodies. Yes. You know, there was this over in my new book, I wanted to speak to this because Stephanie Tate, who is a disability advocate who has taught me so much, she wrote a liturgy for disability in there. Mm-hmm that really deeply ministered to me because it is about convicting us for all the ways that we've harmed those who are disabled with our belief Mm. that they might somehow be experiencing punishment for sin. Yeah. Right. That God's glory is held and revealed in disabled bodies. And she has this like lament and this litany that I wish more churches would pray. Mm. And yeah, and Stephanie just talks about how like, God of love, show us the ways we have excluded disabled bodies from our tables, mm. from our pews, and from our pulpits. Reveal the ways we have belittled and discounted the giftings of disabled people. Teach us how to make a place where they are not only welcome to receive, but they are empowered to serve, teach, and lead 
us as well, remind us of the blueprint scripture offers for a thriving unified body of believers. You know, show us how to welcome disabled, holy welcome disabled bodies to our churches. Teach us to honor our vital role in the kingdom of God, bring justice. I mean, just this idea of being rid of the sin of ableism, all the ways we've internalized these damaging beliefs and then inflicted or acted them out oftentimes, you know, unwittingly, but this idea of saying, no, like let that change begin with us, like rid us of that sin of ableism, Mm -hmm. liberate you know, the, the judgment and the false assumptions and search our hearts and expose our pride. Like these are things like, what does it mean to holy welcome? Like show mm-hmm. us your glory. Yeah. Right? Show us your glory here. Yeah. So I'm reading Latasha Morrison's book right now, Be the Bridge. And she talks a lot about this concept, this corporate repentance, corporate prayer. And I have to be totally honest, and I'm just on a public learning journey like a lot of us are. It just happens to be recorded, but I am white. And when I first heard that, I was like, wait, like, I mean, well, first off, I want to be aware of the racism in my own heart, just saying and like, ask God to search my heart. But, you know, I can definitely be like, well, why should I be apologizing for things that I didn't have a direct part in that I know of in some ways? But where is the power? I see that in, in this too, of saying some people are like, well, I, I haven't purposely excluded disabled people from my church. You know, I haven't been mean to them that I know of. Where is the part for us to play in this corporate repentance? I mean, Daniel does it. You see it all through the Bible, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. what, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that that is one of the things that the North American church has done really, really poorly is collective lament, mm-hmm. collective repentance. Yeah. And understanding and, 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 you know, and again, we have a culture that is hyper individualized, right? That, that really does put the self at the center. And you speak to communities, especially I've found in a lot of communities of color, there's a greater sense of the collective, yeah, right? That we're in this together. Mm-hmm. And so even though, you know, we may be like, well, long time ago, and I don't, you know, I didn't actively do anything myself. And the air that we breathe and the culture we live in and the structures we have put up and the people we have elevated and the voices we tend to listen to and the books we buy have created an environment where we benefit from it. Mm -hmm. And not acknowledging it to me is another instance of trying to avoid the pain. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's, I think, why it's so important for folks like us to be doing that kind of deep work, to be repenting, to be corporately repenting, to own maybe even the systems from which we continue to benefit. Right. And to look for ways to dismantle and reimagine those things to something that is more inclusive and generous and life-giving for everyone. I think that that's one of the things that is maybe part of that invitation to die to Mm ourselves, Right. And to say, if my brother or my sister, my sibling is hurting in some ways is articulating this thing. What does it look like to collectively repent? What does it look like to own my part in that and then actively be part of trying to not, what reconciliation would look like? There's something incredibly powerful in that when we have a culture that celebrates people who will never admit they made a mistake, who would never apologize. Like somehow an apology is a sign of weakness. Mm. I mean, just the amount of humility and excavation and good work that the Holy Spirit is inviting us to right now Mm -hmm. is wide. Yeah. But it doesn't matter anything if it doesn't go deep. Mm. And that means this sense of collectiveness, the sense of being corporate, being part of something, which again, we would maybe understand as the body of Christ. Yeah. Right. And so all of those things, we're all so deeply connected. Our stories are so interconnected. Mm -hmm. Our ancestors were not that long ago. And we continue oftentimes to reap the benefits of, you know, just like there could be generational sin, there can be generational benefits. So you can have a lot of these things all functioning at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think these are really hard conversations and I'm really grateful to you for learning in public and for doing this kind of work and for talking about this so openly. It takes a tremendous amount of humility. Yeah. I think we're lacking extreme ownership. And mm. I know that's a book my husband's read. I haven't owned it, but just saying, even if you think it could be someone else's fault, just saying, I'm going to own that. Yeah. I'm going to own that. Right. We don't do that. No, we really don't. And I mean, I think oftentimes, you know, are we more concerned with self-preservation or preservation of an ideal that never existed? Mm. Or are we more concerned with loving one another? Yeah. You know, what does it mean to love one another well? And when someone is telling you something hurts, when someone is telling you that something has damaged or broken or compassion, our empathy, our invitation is to love, always to love. Yeah. I... 
would love to hear more about your new book and how can that relate to people who have been maybe marginalized for pain, maybe for another reason. Tell us more about the heart behind that because the one that you shared was profound. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the whole thing is, I think that's why I'm so excited about it because it's not just me in this one, right? It's, you know, I... Did you write anything or just edit it? No, I wrote several prayers, several essays, wove kind of the scaffolding around, you know, everything that's happening in the book. Okay. But I wanted to write about prayer for a couple of years now, honestly, Mm Tara. Like I just... Prayer is a really integral part of my life. It has become even more important on the other side of a faith shift. And I think that oftentimes surprises people. They think like, oh, if you've you've become this crazy liberal, (laughs) maybe you don't love Jesus or the Bible or prayer anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like, nope, these things have become even more integral to my life. Mm -hmm. But there's this sense of, I didn't know how to write about prayer in a way that didn't come across as incredibly prescriptive Mm -hmm. and even formulaic. And so I just kind of let the idea sit for a while. And then in early 2019, a very dear friend of mine passed away very unexpectedly. And I had this sense of just feeling very unmoored and desperately needing to pray, but also to be in conversation with other women who also pray. Mm -hmm. And I needed something to put my hand to, or to be honest, I felt like I was just going to sink. And work has always, work writing, collaborating with other people, the the ministry, the work that I do has always been an altar where I meet with God. And so for me, it was very simple at that point to say, okay, I have this idea of wanting to write about prayer, but you know what? It needs to be communal, Mm -hmm. which going back to our, you know, even just our earlier conversation around the individualism. Yeah. And this sense of saying, what does it look like for this to be communal? What does it look like to invite people I trust to be honest, to deal tenderly with people who have grief and loss and broken heart and say, let us pray? What does it look like for that to happen? And so, you know, as the summer wove on, I kind of, you know, called in some friends and and everybody who's in this book are people who are my own teachers, my own leaders. I mean, there's Barbara Brown Taylor, there's Nadia Volz-Weber, there's Stephanie, as I mentioned earlier, and Amina Brown and Shaniqua Walker-Barnes and Emmy Kegler. I mean, just so many great, great leaders. Oshita Moore just kind of turned to them and said, talk to me about prayer, write me a prayer, do something. And as the prayers began to kind of show up in my inbox, especially because I was in a season of such acute grief Mm. in those months, I began to like just print them off and just carry them with me as I'd kind of be going through. And I began to pray again because they gave me language again. And I began to see this thread that the Holy Spirit was kind of weaving through each and every one that just became this rhythm for you get to bring your whole self to prayer. You don't have to pretend you're not as angry as you are. You don't have to pretend you're not as sick as you are. You don't need to pretend you're not as sad as you are, or you're not as grateful or joyous or hopeful as maybe you feel sometimes that your whole self gets to come to prayer. And there's so many different expressions and ways to pray. So I began to kind of write my own essays and prayers around theirs. Mm -hmm. And the book that emerged was so beautiful, so strong, surprising. I think a lot of people have an idea in their head of what a book of prayer from, you know, 20 women might look like. And instead, I mean, it is, Mm -hmm. it is not (laughs) very strong. definitely be some pros and moments that might step on people's you know toes a little bit Mm -hmm. yeah even there I mean just it is it feels like a prayer circle in the best possible way yeah and I'm really proud of it really really grateful for everyone who came alongside as we worked on that over that year Mm -hmm. I'm super excited to read it and I even what you said some some things are not what you expect I don't want to live in that cognitive laziness where I'm not reading things that aren't what I expect, right? Mm -hmm. So what in this book, you talk about surprises, what are some of the misconceptions, let's say, of people surrounding prayer, do you think? You know, I think that there's probably, I mean, there's definitely a a number of misconceptions we have. And and oftentimes that's because I want to say it's like, again, oftentimes how someone met with God and prayed really served them well. Mm -hmm. But there's other times where the acronyms or the checklists or the expectations or even the, you know, sometimes it can feel like a very narrow path. Mm -hmm. And so if you lose that path, so for instance, if you find yourself unable to pray in the way that you were taught to pray, you cannot run through your acronyms, you cannot do your 15 minutes of quiet time before your children wake up, mm-hmm. you know, whatever else it is, you think that maybe you've lost prayer and that prayer is only for one particular kind of person or one particular kind of life. And I think that oftentimes we are surprised. Well, I'll tell you this. I think that scripture is way more honest about prayer than churchy people are. Yeah. The conversation Say that, again. that people and scripture have with God would scandalize 
<laughs> a lot of a lot of very important people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's this sense of what how can we learn? Yeah. Because I remember, you know, 20 years ago, I felt like I lost prayer, especially because of grief, because of loss, because of unanswered prayers. And I remember the pathway back to prayer for me was other people's prayers, mm-hmm. was ancient prayers, saying, I don't have my own prayers anymore. And I'd been taught that making up your own prayers was the holiest kind of praying, mm-hmm. that anything else was not, yeah. <laughs> you know, genuine. But instead, I found that this tapestry of ancient prayer, of communal prayer, of liturgy, of the Book of Common Prayer, even, mm-hmm. that these were things that I could rest here and still have a conversation going with God. Learning about things like centering prayer, learning about liturgy and litany and, and lament, like we talked about earlier, learning about hope and about silence. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of the poetry, all the places. One of the things that Amina Brown said in the book is in order to pray, you have to be willing to find God in places other people don't deem sacred. Hmm. And I think that there's a real invitation for us because we have this demarcation of here's what's sacred, here's what's secular, here's what's prayer, here's what's not. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit will surprise you. Yeah. And what you're talking about that in, in places that you don't think are sacred. And first of all, too, I am also in a Protestant church. And I think that we particularly have lost that being able to pray something that has already been prayed, mm-hmm. right? With the whole reformation and things. It's like, well, we don't want to read out of a book of prayer, right? We need to say what's on our mind. So I'm excited and challenged. I haven't done that. Yeah. I don't know. Besides random things. Yeah. What an amazing concept. But for people who live in, in physical pain or limitation, I think this could be an incredible resource because sometimes you're hurting so badly that you you don't know what to pray. I was actually a part of a conference for for people with chronic illness. And that was something she said in the small group I was in is, how do you pray when you have so much pain that you can't get a coherent thought out? Mm-hmm. How can this help someone in that situation? We have so many ways we are having conversations with God. And for me, I have found that written words, you know, written down prayers has a sense of almost resting or walking on a floor of prayer that other people in the church, I mean, again, because of all of my understanding, even of like the great cloud of witnesses Mm -hmm. and what it means to pray words alongside of people who are gone and maybe in the presence of Jesus and those who are still walking with us now and people in in traditions and churches and places. I mean, there's a real sense of continuity and and goodness and community, I think, when it comes to prayer in those moments. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that in those moments when you have no words, when you have no coherent thought, you're, you're deeply in pain, you're deeply in maybe even in a moment of not knowing how to pray because of those things. I wrote a story about our son, Joe, in Miracles and Other Reasonable Things. Mm-hmm. And it was in the height of the time, he was very little then, and he's given me permission to share this story. I don't usually talk about my kids' inner spiritual lives mm-hmm. without their full permission. But this was really deeply transformative for me personally, because I did feel like, how do you pray when you are in deep pain? What does it mean to pray when you are suffering? What does it mean to pray when you don't really have a lot of hope or faith that things are changing or going to be any different? Yeah. And I remember that he was really little and he was doing this little class on prayer and they had the kids kind of draw pictures of what they thought prayer would be, what prayer actually is. And I got called in to talk to the teacher, which anyone who has kids know that can usually go one of two ways. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't sure what was what kind of awaiting me. But I went in and and the teacher was showing me all the pictures that the other kids had done. And it was all the things you would normally think to say about prayer. It was someone praying at the front of church, right? The pastor praying at the front of church or your mom and dad sitting at your bed, praying goodnight prayers with you or sitting around the dining room table at such a time, being able to have prayer at that time. A couple of kids, I remember even like wrote out a list of what they wanted just in case this counted. God was going to give them an iPad. (laughs) But she said, I wanted to show you what Joe drew. And she flipped over the page and she kind of slid it across the table to me. And on the picture, he had drawn himself in a little red t-shirt, sticky up hair, sitting on our back deck at our house. And beside him was sitting Jesus. Hmm. And of course, you know, it's Jesus because like most children's books, white robe, blue Mm -hmm. sash, you know. (laughs) And so, but it was him and Jesus sitting beside each other and they were holding hands. And he had drawn these little cartoon bubbles over their head. You know, like when in a comic book, when people are talking, And he had said, I love you, Joe. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Joe. I love you, Jesus. And he had just kind of drawn these arrows, saying it back and forth. And at the bottom, he wrote, this is Joe and my Jesus. This is how we pray. Wow. And there was just this utter exhale that happened for me that has never, I've never, never forgotten it. I 
wonder sometimes about all the pathways and the formulas and the ways that we teach and understand prayer. Those are helpful for sure. And I benefit from them and I've written them. But I think that underneath all of it, the conversation we're actually having all along is I love you. Hmm. I love you. It's the presence of God. It's the resting in the belovedness of God. And to me, in those moments when you can't pray, when you have no coherent thoughts, and if you did, they'd probably be a lot of swear words, which we've all been there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've, in those moments, I've started just kind of pulling up a chair and just sitting with Jesus. Mm-hmm. We don't have to have words. Words, if they come, great. But you don't always need words for the presence of God. Amen. Well, it, it takes me right back to what you said earlier in the conversation, which is this is what I wish I would have heard in this time, is you are loved. You are beloved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... In this, that is the most beautiful picture I've ever seen. And I I feel like we are unlearning maybe some things that we've thought prayer was, in a sense. And I'm thinking about how some people very often are told that they're lucky, in a sense, for having suffering because they get to experience levels of God that you don't get to experience without that, which I think is true. But when you are in that suffering, it doesn't feel like that. So when you are being told, I think some people told you that you were really lucky for having survived your accident, I think. Yeah. Is that right? No, for sure. For sure. I think the narrative for almost the entire first little while was, boy, you're lucky, right? You're really lucky. And I mean, in some ways you get what they're saying, right? I mean, there certainly could be a lot of other alternative Mm -hmm. endings to this this story for sure. But you don't feel very lucky when you're strapped on boards. Right. Did you ever think, I think it would have been luckier for me to get to go to heaven? No, I don't say I can't say that I had that thought then or or really since there was a lot of dark days, but I can't say that that thought was was with me in that moment or or even really since. I'm not sure why. I don't know if I have a, a proper answer for you on that one. No, I I ask uh, really light questions on this podcast, by the way. <laughs> not totally fine. Totally fine. I think that that's part of the problem is maybe we are, you know, we stay on the surface for too long and yeah. we don't take a, a deep dive, right? And be able to kind of talk about some of those real realities, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that's important too. Yeah. And I, I wasn't planning to go here, but I'm going to trust the spirit. And if you don't want to talk about it, that's okay. But one kind of healing we also really like to talk about on this podcast is ultimate healing, because that really is the best healing that we can imagine. So I'm sitting here saying, well, did you ever question if you would have felt luckier to go to heaven? But you did have your friend Rachel who did go to heaven. And I'm guessing that you never thought, oh, she's so lucky, right? No, 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 I never thought that. There was, I think at this point, my understanding of how fragile and precarious life is has made me incredibly grateful for the gift of it. Mm. That getting older in any day that passes is never a tragedy, mm. but a gift. Yeah. And I think that we can sometimes romanticize that, but the truth is, is that it's devastating. Yeah. It's completely devastating. Have you, and I know this is, it's been two years. Yeah. Yeah, almost. Which is still so recent. And she was one of your very best friends, right? Yeah, we were very close. So have you gotten to a point where you are grateful for anything that happened through that horrible, devastating tragedy? Can't say that I'm there yet. No, I'm incredibly grateful for Rachel every single day. I miss her every single day. But I can't say that gratitude is something that has really been, I don't know. I think that maybe, you know, some things you just have to live into. Yeah. But it's a hard thing when people are, are grieving and someone has left so incredibly young. I don't know that I'll ever really get over it. Mm-hmm. And so, no, I can't say. I mean, there's moments throughout these last two years where I've seen the grace of God, where I've seen the provision of God, the love of God. Where I've, And again, I don't know that I've ever experienced greater intimacy with God. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't go so far as to say grateful. Yeah. So we talk about ultimate healing and we say that's ultimate. That's the best. But but hearing you say this is like, I think it's the ultimate break in God's plan, death, because it's never meant to happen. That wasn't his plan. And I think that's the one thing we can never get over. Mm -hmm. And so what would you say to someone who's maybe in that place who is like, I can't see this as ultimate healing. I don't know what to do, Sarah. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure that necessarily I have the the right answer for anyone. I mean, a lot of times there's just when things are sad, you just got to let them be sad. Mm -hmm. And Frederick Buechner talks about obeying the sadness. And I think that that invitation was really helpful for me because I came from a tradition that was very much like, we're not having a funeral. We're going to have a celebration of life. Mm. We're not going to talk about 
the loss and the grief because we're just going to be happy someone's with Jesus. And those things are true, but they're not humane. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that we've somehow tricked out of our imaginations the idea that feeling our feelings is somehow a lack of faith. But you're allowed to feel. You're allowed to lament. Anything otherwise probably isn't healthy. Yeah. And I think acknowledging the loss and the grief and the loneliness, I think that was one thing that really surprised people was when we had Rachel's funeral, it was it was a funeral. It was an actual funeral. Mm-hmm. And that to me was really important. It was important to a lot of us who loved her. It was important to her family because this is part of it. We go down into grief in order to find hope. Mm-hmm. You don't get to have one without the other. And learning how to just sit in the sadness to sit in the intimacy of with God, with your grief or your loss or your longing, those things will ultimately mean your wound is, is clean, hmm. right? As opposed to just, you know, cheered up over the top and poured sugar, sugar into, right? Yeah. But it's hard. It's a discomfort, right? It's hard for us to to not try to jolly people along or move them along faster than they're willing to go, to let them be in the place where they are and to let yourself be in the place where you are. Mm-hmm. Knowing what I know about the kingdom of God and hoping what I hope for about time and space and what it means to follow God and what it means to be in the presence of God, there's always hope. Mm-hmm. But the hope doesn't erase the grief either, yeah. that you have to be able to hold one, both of them in your hands. Yeah. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. I know that probably doesn't get much easier. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. So I'm going to move. I'm going to let you breathe for a little second and let's totally change and go in a totally different direction and say in this book, what is the joy in this? Are there sections? Are there different emotions? What makes you so, so happy about sharing this with the world? You know, there are so many things about this that make me really happy about the moment in time that it's coming Mm -hmm. through, about praying for racial justice, about, you know, what it looks like to pray. Elia Joy talks about praying. um, She's a woman who lives with bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. and like what prayer looks like for her. You know, these prayers and longings and things like that. But there's also this real sense of wonder and curiosity Mm -hmm. to the book that I really, really loved. This sense of embodiment, of invitation, and even benediction. For a lot of those things, but there's this one prayer by Emmy Kegler, who's just uh, she's a, a pastor out in uh, Minneapolis. Wrote a book called One Coin Found, which is incredible. But she wrote a prayer for all the so-called lost mm-hmm. that I just thought was so incredibly beautiful about taking that parable of the woman who had a coin lost in her home and sweeps mm-hmm. looking for it, trying to find this one coin. And she talks about being the quarter clinking around at the bottom of God's washing machine. Hmm. And just like the play of words on all these things of like those ones who have, you know, are part of the congregation of the forgotten corner. She talks that the church of the still lost and found and what it means for Jesus, for every sheep and coin and child called lost, Mm -hmm. that Jesus pulls you close and whispers found. Wow. Right. And it's so profound and beautiful and affirming and joyful and such a play on the parable that then heals at the same time. I mean, just moments like that are just filled throughout the book. And it just, I find myself revisiting them over and over and over again. And I'm really, really grateful for all the contributors who came alongside and offered up, you know, oftentimes the deepest cries of their heart. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's, that's a beautiful thing. There's the joyousness to that. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to get my hands on this. And I hope everyone listening is like, oh my gosh, I need this now. It's what you've done. Thank you. And I know I try, since I'm on the other side of that screen writing things, I think sometimes it's a very thankless job or or you hear from people after it's finished, after you put in all that work. So I just want to say thank you for all the unseen things that you're doing for people who get to enjoy your content and you get to be a mentor to so many people you never meet. So for all of them who can't say thank you, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much, Tara. I really appreciate that. And thank you for such a thoughtful conversation. Yeah. So I want to close with a couple things. I want to read some of your writing because I think it's beautiful. If that doesn't embarrass you too much. <laughs> this is a passage about your dad who had his own health things going on, right? Mm-hmm. And so from the miracles book, and I loved this. And so you're talking in the future, even though it happened in the past, but I think this could really speak to someone. So I want to share this and then I'll, then I'll ask you what you would like to share as well. You say, and he will have his own questions over the suffering. 
He will wonder where God is in the pain. He will think that if it weren't for love that filled him and surrounded him and sustained him, he wouldn't have bothered. He will learn what it is to hear your own heart beat and know that it's a miracle. He will learn what it means to love God and to endure unanswered prayers and unexpected grace for suffering. He will begin to understand the miracle of healing is wider and more expansive than it was 30 years before when he dared God to heal him one prayer night. He will learn what it means to pray on the other side of a strange and painful, ordinary miracle. Mm. Makes me cry reading it. I felt like someone needs to hear that. A strange and ordinary miracle. Because there's so many miracles that we miss. So many. And he's redeeming it. There's nothing past his redemption. Absolutely. And often it comes to us in ways that are unexpected and painful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's just it. God unbecomes. Yeah. And then God becomes. Well, thank you for reading that. Yeah. I just think people need to get that book as well. Miracles and Other Reasonable Things is what it's called. And God has some redemption waiting for you on the other side of looking your fear and pain in the eye. Mm -hmm. So Sarah, what have we not covered? It can be related to something we've said or totally unrelated or just something God put on your heart. Is there anything else you'd want to share with someone listening? No, I can't think of a single thing. We we covered a lot of ground, you and me. (laughs) It was really deep. Thank you for going there. No, it's been great. How can people connect with you? Well, I'm at sarahbessie.com. That's where you can kind of find links for Evolving Faith and all my books and on social media. I also write a newsletter called Field Notes. You can find all that stuff there. So it's kind of the hub for everything. So if you just go to sarahbessie.com, you'll find everything you're probably looking for. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. I can't say it enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh my goodness. I am so grateful for people like Sarah who are willing to bear their souls in the middle of a podcast so that God can be glorified and others can find healing. So if you found something healing in this episode, I highly encourage you to pray for Sarah, to pray for her ministry, to reach out to her and tell her what it meant to you. I have linked her books, the Evolving Faith Conference, and ways to connect with her in the show notes. Thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for showing up for these hard, good conversations. And I will see you here again next Monday.